friends. Welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs. I'm really happy to be here with you today. We've got a great show in store. And y'all, today on the show, I get to talk with Kurt Thompson. Y'all, Kurt Thompson is amazing. He's a board-certified psychiatrist and the founder of Being Known, an organization that develops resources for hope and healing at the intersection of neuroscience and spiritual formation. He is brilliant. And his new book, The Soul of Desire, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community is fascinating, y'all. I I really loved it so much. I cried almost every page I read. It's just beautiful. I cannot wait for all of us to get to learn from him together. So here's my conversation with Kurt Thompson. First of all, Kurt, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for, I, you're very kind to invite me and to have me here. And I was speaking to Fallon. Yes. So this uh, this work that I do has to do with this thing we call integration, right? Yes. Which, which Jesus would say is becoming whole, even as yeah. our Father in Heaven is also whole. 30 minutes ago, I didn't have any idea what a podcast network was. Oh, wow. Because I, I, I even... I even have a podcast, and I don't. There are many, many things that I don't know yes. about these things. And then, uh, in speaking with Fallon about what you've done in creating your network, I thought, like, oh my goodness, what you're doing in imagining, not just for yourself but for others, in creating this network, uh, as it turns out, is very much like what the brain does in its ideal states. Wow, really? You ha- yeah, because you have. The, the mind is, you know, we, we talk about this embodied and relational process, but that has all these multiple different differentiated and linked functions mm-hmm. that are correlated with different anatomical parts of the brain and functions of the brain mm-hmm. and so forth. But you can't really have, the mind can't really do what it's going to do really, really well unless it has all these different parts that are coming together in this linked fashion, not unlike a really, really well-practiced orchestra. Yeah. As she was describing what the network is about that you've helped to envision, mm-hmm. I thought, oh my gosh, like that is an example, that's an extension of what a flourishing mind looks like right wow. there in this very organization. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, um, I was just so tickled to, to think like, I, I get to be invited to come and be part of that yeah. conversation. So yeah. thank you so much for, wow. and I'm just well done thank in what you. you're doing. Thank you. I mean, well, well done. Awesome. That means a lot. It is. A, it's a dream come true for me. It mm-hmm. really is mm-hmm. to be able to. We can do so much more together than I was able to do by myself. Right. <laughs> Which is the. I mean, we are impacting so many more people on shows I'm not on mm-hmm. than the shows I am on. Right. And right. that feels like, right. like I think that's when I'm gone. I want to be remembered for that kind of stuff. Right. Right. That we did gospel work that didn't mm-hmm. have my name on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. oh, I just love it. Right. Um, thank you yeah. for saying that. Yeah, I have been a fan of your work for so long, thanks mm-hmm. to If Gathering. Really, I mm-hmm. mean, there's you've got to have the wildest collection of female fans now <laughs> because of being a part of If. Is that true? Did it just yes. change yes, your life? Yes, it is. Yes, it, yes, it did. I I cannot <laughs> tell a lie. It it did. It's it's. Uh, I mean, the number of people that we now have in common mm-hmm. that uh, three or four years ago I. Didn't know at yes. all, and um, you know, in in some respects, anything that I'm doing, uh, I've said, is always going to it's it, it's an extension of being invited into other people's spaces, mm. and so it's very humbling. And 
so yes, they're. Um, I, I, I don't. I don't know if they should be my fans, but I'm. I'm. I'm <laughs> grateful that they would we call are. me their friend. We are. Yeah. I have read Anatomy of the Soul. Mm. I have read Soul of Shame. I just got to read The Soul of Desire. Mm. Will you back us up a little bit? How did you start connecting? In, in a spiritual way, really, you've done a work that you're one of the first that I've experienced where you put together what happens in our brains and how God made our brains with what's happening in our souls mm-hmm. and, and helping us to integrate. As you mm-hmm. talked about, how did that become your passion? Well, I think, you know, I, I tell the story of how I quite uh, accidentally wandered into a workshop at the American Psychiatric Association's annual conference back now 17 and a half years ago where Dan Siegel was teaching this half-day course on this notion of interpersonal neurobiology. And it's for our listeners, it's this collection of scientific disciplines that all have a stake in what is the mind and how does it work uh-huh. well. And Dan was, you know, one of the first people to really start to think about like, well, what is the mind in, what is it, what does a mind look like when it's flourishing in, in psychiatry, in medical school? And so forth. you get lots of training about what's wrong with a mind. Mm-hmm. We, it's not hard to, to decide like, wh- well, where is it broken? Right. But the question of like, what does a beautiful right. mind look like? How does a mind flourish when it's flourishing well? That's a question that we don't really, right. really explore very much. This was work that he was doing, and I left that workshop knowing uh, I don't know how, but life is not going to be the same for me because there were so many things that were just jumping off the page in that workshop, and then subsequent interactions with Dan and others, such that this new emerging field of interpersonal neurobiology, to me, um, reflects in Acts 17, where Paul is talking to the Lakotians, and he says, you know, God never leaves himself without a witness. Mm. And we live in a world right now, 21st century, especially in the West, in which uh, the primary way in which we come to believe that we can know anything is through the scientific method. Even whether you know it or not, when you buy yeah. a toilet, uh-huh. right, it's through the scientific method. And The, the pro- one we learned in school? Exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> but it's applied, it's, it's applied to absolutely everything. Yeah. So even applied to whether or not I can know things about faith. Wow. And the difficulty with that is that there's many, many other ways of actually knowing things. And one of the most powerful ways we come to know things is not by me being the one who asks all the questions, but by being known because somebody else is asking the questions of Mm. me. And this emerging field of neuroscience, in fact, turns back on itself and says, look, as it turns out, the, the data of the science says that science itself is not the ultimate way that we know stuff that the ultimate way that we know stuff is relationally. That's how we come to know things most powerfully. And what I'm discovering is that in a time when science is speaking powerfully to people and where people have a harder time making sense of and listening to and responding to the gospel as it has traditionally been given over the last four to 500 years, Mm God is using its, his very creation, the creation of neuroscience, to speak to people about the gospel in ways that heretofore we haven't been able to access. And so that combination of neuroscience and spiritual formation began to tick around in my brain, and out of this came anatomy of the soul, really asking this question, how does neuroscience 
really both reflect and then re-energize our experience of what it means to be followers of Jesus mm-hmm. and the emergence of the new heaven and new earth. Mm-hmm. With that, uh, in, the, in the course of writing that, you come to discover, oh, this is this imagined sense of what God is up to, but how is it, you know, in the course of, of that, we discover that one of the common themes that really disintegrates systems mm-hmm. is this work of shame. And yes. shame, we might say, is actually, it's, it's part of the created order. It's what mm-hmm. it's a signal yep. built into the system of like, sure. it tells us that there's a problem, but we respond to it uh, in ways that evil tries to take advantage of. Mm. And so the second book on shame really then looked at what do we do about this primary disintegrating interpersonal and neurobiologic force that mm-hmm. is in the world that isn't just a thing that makes each of us as individuals feel bad, but actually disintegrate. I mean, it's 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 behind racism, it's behind political rancor, it's behind everything that evil is using to hijack all that. And so try to address that in the second book. And then in this third book, uh, I, I think, you know, we we eventually get to places where you know, the brain is uh, primed mm-hmm. to look at the world and think about the world in terms of problems to solve. Like, I'm always right. looking for where the danger is. Right. And, of course, this is not a bad thing, especially if I'm crossing the street and a car comes right, and right, blows its right, horn. Right, 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 um, But my commitment to looking for danger, my commitment to understanding my life as pathology, mm. as being broken, my commitment to a narrative that is salt and peppered with shame yeah. all through it makes it very difficult for me to ask the question, wait a minute, what is what is the new act of beauty that God wants to create? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's dangerous for me to do this because if you're going to create beauty, it takes vulnerability, it takes risk, it takes the presence of saying, I actually don't do this very well on my own, I need somebody else to do this. And, and so I think a... a uh, kind of a, a a pinnacle response to what came out in this book on shame uh, that emerged out of the first book, questions about how we disintegrate things, is this question of beauty and what is the next artifact of beauty? And not only that we are called to create, but we're doing this because we can't not do it. Yes. And we're not just trying to make beautiful artifacts, we're trying to do that as an expression, as a preamble to the beauty that God is creating us mm-hmm. to be. When you talk in the book about making artifacts, and 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 I, I was so moved uh, when I read about it, uh, the idea of artifacts, of like leaving things behind right. for people to see the beauty of God. Right. How, will you talk about that word a little bit? And why is that the word you chose when we're talking about what we desire and when we're talking about making beauty? Why artifacts? Well, you know, so again, I I am, I'm struck by the way uh, the biblical narrative talks so explicitly about how rooted we are in in the material world. Mm Mm-hmm. And that beauty isn't a function just of, it's not just some abstraction, right? It is a thing that we see in embodied practice. And I don't just see a beautiful painting. I don't just see a beautiful canyon. I don't just hear a beautiful piece of music. I, uh, I yeah, you know, we, we do this work in these confessional communities that is kind yeah. of one of the rails on which this book runs. And I can't tell you how many times there has been an event and an experience in this, in one of these groups 
where something has happened even between the members in the group, some rupture that's happened and there's repair work that takes place and somebody else in the group will say, I've never seen a more beautiful thing in my life because we feel it viscerally in our bodies. And so the notion of artifact is a word that we use to represent a real substantive thing in the world, mm -hmm. right? It is a real relationship. I, you were saying earlier that when you're gone, mm -hmm. this network that isn't an abstraction, right? It's real people, mm -hmm. really together. People will look at this and say like this, this thing is like, this is the gospel mm -hmm. because of what we've sensed and imaged and felt and seen in real time and space in real embodied ways. And this is the thing, like we remember far more powerfully the things that our bodies sense in our chests. Yes. If I don't sense it in my chest, it has not yet become fully real mm -hmm. to me. And uh, so that's kind of behind where that word yeah. comes from. I'm sorry, we're only six minutes in, I'm already crying. Mm. Does this happen a lot when you do podcast interviews? <laughs> <laughs> It's happened before. Okay, great. <laughs> You're like, yes, Annie, this is what I do to people. This is what I do to people. But I was sitting by the pool on vacation mm. reading this book. Mm. And I am, the pool's full of kids. Uh, I'm not married yet. Don't have kids yet. So it's just me. Yeah. And I'm on vacation by myself. And I am bawling mm. reading this book. And mm. I feel like my chest is going to explode. Mm. Sorry. What mm. I'm reading about what we get to make mm. and what God has invited us into mm -hmm. if mm. we will be vulnerable mm -hmm. enough mm -hmm. to admit we want to do the work mm -hmm. that is before us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in my personal life, I'm, I'm in a moment where I'm also mm. having to be braver than I've been before in a long time. Yeah. And, and it's requiring vulnerability, but I see beauty on the other side. Right. And I right. see an artifact coming and right. we are going to build something that is worth this. Right. right. And right. so when you talk about in the book being seen, mm. soothed, mm. safe, and secure, mm -hmm. those are the four things we want. And those mm -hmm. are four things when we are when we feel desire in us. If I'm mm -hmm. retelling your book to you correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, right on. <laughs> when we feel desire in us, it is because we are longing to be seen, soothed, safe, or secure. Is right. that true? Right. Is it all four of them? It's all four and it starts at birth and it never ends. This sense of, we, I, I like to say that every baby comes into the world looking for someone, looking for her. Mm. And it never stops. Yeah. It never stops. And so for us to become these artifacts, these objects, this pulsating body of beauty, yeah. not just because individually, like I can only, I'm only able to become beautiful to the degree that you and I become beautiful together. Yeah. Right. They're, they're direct functions of each other. And so the first thing that has to happen is the baby has to literally be seen. And yes. not just seen as an object, oh, there she is, but also seen then to be soothed, right? Because I'm not just going to like admire her as the distant observer. Mm. I'm going to engage with her. And she comes out crying. She comes out wanting to nurse. She comes out with all these needs, right? Yeah. Needing to be soothed. And then to be soothed over time with that, the baby, the newborn, the infant, the toddler, the 58-year-old, yeah. uh, learns that they're safe. 
right? Mm. That they can be confident in this environment in which I'm growing up. I can learn, and that and that's safe. One of the things that we talk about in the book, the safety is not just from the outside environment. I'm not just safe from things that are bad that are gonna right. happen to me. Right. I'm also learning to be safe from myself. Yes, I am safe in my own self. Right, because yeah. part of part of God's love is as much about his no as is his yes. yes. And so the two-year-old yes. who has the impulse to do all kinds right. of things at some point will need to be trained to be safe from themselves in addition yes. to safe from outside things. And once this is constructed, we move then to what I would consider to be this notion of secure. And this is, uh, the, you know, uh, Tina Payne Bryson and Dan Siegel, you know, kind of name these four words, but here's where I diverge from them a little bit. And when, when I talk about security, this notion that, you know, Genesis 2, 26 through 28 is just, it's just something you can't avoid as a human being. Therefore, right. you know, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth, right? Yes. Flourish, right? Extend, steward it, grow it, create, mm -hmm. even as I, your creator, have also created. And this notion of I'm going to be safe in order for me now to launch out in order for me to be secure enough to take risks, mm -hmm. secure enough to make mistakes, secure enough to know that I'm gonna try things and there's gonna be ruptures, yeah. right? If I'm gonna love you well enough, like at some point, like I'm gonna piss you off. Right. At some point, you're gonna hurt my feelings. And I need to know that when I experience ruptures, that we do the work of repair. Yeah. When things fall apart, I always have a place where I can return to where I'm gonna be seen, soothed, and safe, mm -hmm. this secure base. And so here's where this is about secure attachment. But we would say like, this is written into the first chapter of Genesis. When yeah. you imagine the Holy Trinity saying, let us make mankind, and like we would presume that they see Good Friday coming. Yeah. Yeah. And even so, you know, you wonder, is Jesus thinking, I'm not sure that this is such a good idea. Right. We don't right. have to start this. <laughs> yeah. Do you really want to do this? Yeah. And yet there is this sense in which he is secure enough that he launches yeah. into this space that uh, is, is going to leave him in a very vulnerable, dangerous place because he knows even even as he's being crucified, that he is being seen, soothed, safe, even in a space that is anything but that. Yes. And this is where we would say that beauty really begins to emerge. Uh, it's not hard for us to look at the things that we have created that are beautiful, everything from your network to the Grand Canyon to I, my wife and I just got back from nine days in Iceland. Oh, was it awesome? I have, I have no words. Ugh. I have no words. And... That's not hard to imagine beauty. It's very different to imagine beauty in crucifixion. Mm. It's different to imagine beauty in, you know, relationships that are so horribly fractioned in our racism, in our political difficulties, all the things. Mm -hmm. difficult. And we would say, but it is in those spaces that God looks back through Easter mm -hmm and says, Good Friday tells us that there's nothing more beautiful than a crucified Lord mm, mm -hmm. in the context of Easter. And so part of what we do, even as followers of Jesus, is that we are called to look for beauty on the other side of people's brokenness yeah. and to invite them to become curious about where the beauty is. And of course, 
you know, as we say, and I, I wrote about one of the examples of a marriage, right, where they come into the office and I'm asking, what's the new beautiful thing you want to create? And they're like, they don't have it. What the heck? Yes. Like there's, there, oh, that doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense at yeah. all. And this is what Jesus is talking about when they're so confused about how suffering is invariably going to lead, not because it's good in and of itself, but because God is never leaving us mm. without his witness. Hey friends, just interrupting this conversation real quick to share about another one of our incredible partners, Grove Collaborative. Did you know that companies around the world produce 2 billion pounds of new plastics every day? Ugh. Yet no matter how much we put in our recycling bin, only 9% of plastic actually gets recycled. At Grove Collaborative, they believe it's time to stop making single-use plastic. Oh, I am not a fan of single-use plastics. Y'all know this, which is just one of the reasons I love Grove. Grove is the online marketplace that delivers healthy home, beauty, and personal care products directly to you. Grove takes the guesswork out of going green. Every product is guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, and the planet. I get all my cleaning supplies for home, and we get everything we use at the office from Grove. I love that all of their products are clean and sustainable. One less thing I have to worry about as far as being a good friend to myself, to our team, and to the planet. Join over 2 million households who choose to shop sustainably at Grove. Plus, shipping is fast and free on your first order. Choosing products that are better for you and the planet has never been easier, y'all, for a limited time. When my friends go to grove.com slash sounds fun, you'll get to choose a free starter set with your first order. So go to grove.com slash sounds fun to get your exclusive offer. That's grove.com slash sounds fun. And now back to our conversation with Kurt. I love that part of the book where you said, what's the beautiful thing you want to create? Will you talk to our single friends for just a minute? Mm. The men and women who aren't married yet. Mm -hmm. That When I was reading that, I thought, yeah, I want to find, I want to be with the man who we're creating something beautiful that's outside right. of ourselves. Right. How do, how do we look for that? And how can you know before you're married to someone? That's not a question you sit down over pizza and go, what's the beautiful thing you want to create? Because do I want to create the same beautiful thing? Right. <laughs> how right. do we see sense that or sort that or look for that or pray for that. Right. So this would be uh, this my reflection. You know, people, our listeners can take it or leave it. This is part of the issue, right? When we say, what do we say to our single friends? And I would say that we have to be careful mm -hmm. to talk to our single friends as if the experience that they have somehow is just theirs alone. Because I would want to say to our married friends... We don't get to talk to our single friends without you being in the room. Mm -hmm. That yeah. this is as much about those of us who are in different spaces in life, especially in a culture that has made marriage a holy grail. Mm -hmm. uh, we would want to say that we want those differentiated parts of our body of Jesus to be co-creating things mm. so that we're not just saying to one part of the body, our single friends, what are you, how are you going to do this? Yes. We want to say, how are you? And then to our married friends, how are we yes. going to do this together? Yes. No one, like, no, like the ear doesn't get to say, well, I'm, because I'm not an eye, I don't like... Right. I, don't, I don't make something beautiful. I, right, I don't, right. 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 And so the other thing I would say, though, is that I have a number of friends who are single who 
have just like enriched my, they, they continue to enrich my life. And not just because they're single, mm-hmm. but because of who they are, living, pulsating, breathing person. Mm-hmm. And I want them not to be alone in the world. Mm-hmm. And I want them also, though, to be recognizing that, and, and this is what's really difficult for us. Uh, you know, I, I, I say like, when I, when I hear, you know, Matthew 5, when we, Jesus says, you know, for you're the light of the world, mm-hmm. and who would light a lamp and then put it under a bushel? Implying that, of course, like, why would you do that if you're, if you're a light? So I hear Jesus saying, you're the light of the world, Kurt. Don't screw it up. Yeah, yeah. And what if instead Jesus is really saying, I, Annie, I look at you and I've never seen anything so illuminating. Mm. And the problem is, I don't believe that's the case, that I'm illuminating. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, in, in, our, in our practice, we do a men's group that runs for about you know, eight months, eight or nine months uh, every year. And I can't tell you how many men for whom it is true, who absolutely do not believe that they have any, that, that they have emotional impact in the world. Mm. They don't believe it. Wow. There's no felt sense that when I walk in the room, the room is going to be more beautiful. Wow. I, there's no, like I, I walk in the room and it, like, what do I got to do to fix things? What do I do to make sure that I don't screw things up? How do I, how am I going to help things? There's no sense that just that my presence in the room necessarily can create a felt sense for the people in the room to be seen, soothed, safe, secure, because I myself have not had the experience of doing this. Mm. And so I do believe that one of the things that we can do is to be practitioners of this work, those four S's, yeah. with the people around us, discovering that as we are doing the work of enabling others to be seen, mm-hmm. soothed, safe, that also, it's not just that I create the opportunity for them to be secure, that practice also enables me to have the felt sense of how my life has impact on others. Mm. Right. One of the things that we uh, recognize in the difference between somebody who does individual counseling with somebody who's in a group, the difference between those two settings, one difference is that if I'm a, if I'm a patient in a counseling session and you're my therapist, mm-hmm. uh, I don't really get a lot of impression that I'm being of much help to you. Like right. that's not what I'm paying you for. Right. I'm, not, right. you know, I'm not paying <laughs> you for me to help you. Yeah. But in these confessional communities, one of the most important things that we recognize is that people begin to have the experience that I actually am helpful for the others in this community. Mm -hmm. And I'm, interestingly enough, not most helpful for them because I offer my wisdom and my wit and my suggestions. I'm actually most powerfully helpful because of my vulnerability, Mm -hmm. because of the parts of my life that are broken. Yes. Which, of course, is completely counterintuitive, but if, once again, is all about Good Friday. And this whole notion of how we are vulnerable with others actually creates the opportunity for them to be seen, oddly enough, because when I talk about the part of my story that I hate the most, uh, that very act creates resonance within others Mm -hmm. about their own stories that heretofore they have not thought about, that they don't know, that they don't know about even. I don't know that that's helpful, all that. That's a lot of yapping about your question for our single friends. No, that Um, is so helpful. I have done, 
uh, everyone listening knows I'm a big fan of counseling. I've been in individual counseling for eight years, hmm. weekly, monthly, whatever, mm-hmm. in the same relationship. Mm-hmm. And I went to onsite. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I've done the group therapy experience, mm-hmm. experiential thing. And mm-hmm. it blew my mind how listening to other people's stories healed me. Right. Like their stories were so different from mine, but when they would be vulnerable and tell us what was really true going on in them, something would change in me about my story, even though it was totally different. Right, right. We, like to, we like to say that uh, when people ask, well, what do, you, what do you do? I said, my job is to help people tell their stories more truly. Mm. That's my job. Mm. And we have to recognize that we can't tell our stories most truly unless we are doing it consciously and intentionally with collaborators. With collaborators. The reality is nobody in the world ever self-identifies about anything. I know. I hate that. I Nobody hate that, Nobody self-identifies, <laughs> right? So what actually happens I want to is, believe that the story I experience is true, and it's not 100% true. Right. And so in order for me, there are certain parts of my story that I cannot know unless you help me tell it. Unless, I mean, how many times have we been, and you may have had this experience, where someone tells some of their story, and as they do so, their words aren't really matching their emotional expression. Yes. And then someone else in the room says, you know, John, when you were talking about that, I'm like, aren't you furious with your father? Mm. And John's like, I'm, I'm just the thing that happened to me. It's not until Sarah says to John, I'm, I'm furious with your father that John has any access mm. to the anger that is with him. And, and here's where the beauty of God's created neurobiology comes into play because these things that we call mirror neurons that are re- these resonant circuits were in which when you are being most true, especially about the things that are most painful, your right brain is talking to my right brain in a way that my left brain, which has worked really, really hard mm. to protect me, mm-hmm. uh, it's all circumvented. Yeah, I can't right? say that and have any voice. I can't protect protect myself any longer from your vulnerable transparency. Mm. And I find myself feeling things. And oftentimes, like, I don't even know what this is that I'm feeling, let alone where it's coming from, how it's related to my story. But the degree to which I've been working all my life, burning tons of energy, trying to contain all that, which means that that is energy I do not have available to create. create. That blew my mind when you wrote that. Yes. Yeah. Then it's almost like when I am busy managing my shame and holding and and trying to live in a world where I'm managing my shame, I am using energy that is meant to be creating something beautiful out of vulnerability. Right. 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 So even you bring up in the book a lot imagination Mm -hmm. and the power of imagination. Mm -hmm. And I am... I'm an Enneagram 7, and so I can reframe very well. And when I am in a relationship or when I'm in a work relationship, I can actually imagine very far down the path. It's part of how I know whether to keep going. Right, right. (laughs) Is can I see as far, I say a lot, I love the trailer. I want to watch the movie. (laughs) So, (laughs) but that doesn't mean the movie goes the way I thought, but because the the trailer never has the worst parts. The trailer never has the slow parts. Right. But I can see a lot of trailers. Right. In my story. Uh, Will you talk a little bit about the power of imagination and and how do we know when we're going too far? 
how do I know when I've gone too far in my imagination and, and done too much? Because right. I don't know. I just let myself go, Kurt. Right, right. Well, um, a couple of things I think I would say. Uh, one is, um, I, I say this to folks, uh, apart from certain conditions in which we are, um, you know, traumatized uh, medically, a brain tumor, head injury, so yeah, forth and so on. Yeah. The brain is actually a pretty trustworthy organ. Mm, it's pretty trustworthy. The brain is a pretty trustworthy it's a, organ. It's a very trustworthy organ. Our, our challenge is that we often have experiences that because of their discomfort that we have, we identify that as a problem. We identify that as like, now there's something wrong with me. That there's a, like, so, so if I'm anxious, I think my anxiety is there's something wrong. And, and, and that's not untrue to a certain degree. But what we really want to be curious about is like, well, what is it telling you? Yes. What is it telling you? Now, why is that related? How is that related to your question? When we imagine things, it is, we, we like to say that imagination uh, can, you know, it covers a lot of ground. I can daydream in my imagination. Mm-hmm. I can imagine the future, as in trailer in the movie. Mm-hmm. I can imagine this. I see how this thing ends. And yet we never imagine in terms of our time, we're heading into the future, we never imagine anything that we aren't simultaneously remembering. Okay. Which is why I like to say we remember our futures. Mm. I don't ever imagine anything in my future that is not an extension of something that I've already experienced in my past. Okay. So when I imagine that things are going to go wrong, mm-hmm. in some respects, it's going to be a function of my insecure attachment and my unrepaired ruptures in the past. Mm-hmm. And so when I, in my Enneagram 7-ness, yeah. see all these things, one thing that we would want to say is that we're, we're in, our, in, our, in our work that we do, we are always wanting to be curious about, like, what is it that you do imagine? Talk about that story yeah. and attach the emotional states that you have, what's, what's going to happen to you. And one of the things that we say about our imagination that is it is fueled by emotion. Mm-hmm. And emotion's really the thing that's in charge of directing mm-hmm. where this goes. And it's true that there are two ways in which imaginations can be imperfectly helpful. And, and that is, one is, is, is that this, this notion that, like, I can't imagine. Yeah. So, for instance, when, when we ask the question, what do you want? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what I want. That is a sign of a truncated imagination. Okay. Right? I'm not able, it has been sheared off for all kinds of reasons because maybe I grew up in a house where to imagine what I, what I would want, to imagine doing things, gets hooked together with painful experiences of being poorly disciplined or being shamed, made to feel afraid, and so forth. And so I don't allow myself. In fact, I practice not allowing myself to imagine things. And I need someone else to help extend my imagination. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other side of that where, you know, I have a difficult life and I let my imagination go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I just go all kinds of places. In both instances, not unlike everything, the, the, the creative act always has to have proper boundaries. Mm. The creative act of imagination yeah. has to have boundaries. When Maku Fujimura paints. Oh, I love that you point us to those paintings. I looked at right. all of them. Oh. Yeah, they're, I mean, again, like I have no words. Yes. But when he paints, he doesn't have an endless canvas. That's right, that's right. He has a boundary. That's right. Right, that's I mean, brilliant. at some point, Beethoven's ninth comes to an end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's in these spaces that I would say that relationally, our boundaries 
are, are, are made by our cloud of witnesses. We want to continue to come back to these and say, here's what I'm wondering. What are you thinking? And I'm not looking for you just to give me your analysis of what I think. When you say, I, I say, here, you know, Annie, here's what I'm thinking of doing. And you say, well, gosh, Kurt, I, I feel really excited and I feel worried. Mm. And you talk to me about what you're worried about. And before you know it, I find that like, well, your worry actually touches some of my worry. Mm. And before you know it, what I told you initially that I'm imagining gets to be expanded, but it also gets to be pruned. Mm -hmm. It also gets to be shaped so that in the very same way that God in the beginning gives us this expansive palette in the mm -hmm. garden, mm -hmm. he also says no. Right. He also puts a boundary on this. And so our imaginations necessarily as they are needing to be expanded. I mean, imagine... If you're 18 to 36 months after the resurrection and you're trying to make sense of the book of Isaiah, right? <laughs> we knew for the last 500 years, 400 years, what the book of Isaiah was pointing to and, and, and the kind of Messiah it was pointing to and all the things. And now we have people who've had an experience with a, with a person who we think might be more than just a person who's Messiah is, they have to expand their capacity to imagine those texts. Right. And they can't do, they don't just have one person, like they all have to do this together. And in the same way, we are expressions of those texts in which we also need people to help us imagine our lives on a regular, ongoing basis. Hey friends, just interrupting this conversation real quick to share about another one of our incredible partners, Super Beats from Human. With as many things as there are demanding our attention, it can be tough to make sure you're getting all the nutrients you need throughout your day. Work, family, friends, and hobbies, all of these things really matter, but they can also keep you so focused that you forget some of the essential self-care that makes you the best parent or spouse or friend or employee or employer you can be. And that's why Super Beats heart chews are an essential part of my daily routine. These chews taste really great, y'all. And I love knowing that with Super Beats, I'm doing what I can to keep my heart healthy and my energy sustained. Super Beets Heart Chews combine non-GMO beets with a special ingredient, grape seed extract. Okay, that is unique to Super Beets Heart Chews, y'all. Grape seed extract has been the focus of scientific research for years due to its high concentration of antioxidants, which supports cardiovascular health and overall wellness. The grape seed extract used in Super Beets Heart Chews has been clinically shown to be two times more effective at supporting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. Here's the thing, y'all. You can't find this quality grape seed extract in just any product. This grape seed extract is clinically studied, quality tested, traceable to the source, and scientifically shown to support blood flow and healthy blood pressure. Healthy blood flow means more energy, the way nature intended, without the jittery caffeine or stimulants. Just two delicious chews a day gives that blood pressure support that you need and the energy that you want. Do what I did and support your heart health with delicious Super Beats Heart Chews. Get your Super Beats Heart Chews today at superbeats.com slash that sounds fun. And when you buy two bags, they'll throw in a third for free. Again, that's superbeats, B-E-E-T-S dot com slash that sounds fun. And now back to finish our conversation with Kurt Thompson. So running, uh, actually, I'd like to read you a quote of your own, mm. <laughs> mm. if you don't mind, and have you respond to it about imagination. 
And this is from The Soul of Desire. Before we live into a different future, we must imagine it. And for us to imagine our future as God does, we will need his help in particular, for no human is going to imagine the future as God does. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm currently reading for the second time through this uh, book called Dominion by Tom Holland, a British author of antiquities, and he was made famous by writing about a number of different um, kingdoms of ancient world, and he's writing about you know, how our world has been shaped by Christianity. Mm. He's not a believer, um, but I would commend the book to anyone. And he talks about this notion of how crucifixion in the Roman world mm-hmm. was uh, something that was so heinous that the Romans themselves, the Romans and the Greeks who invented it, wouldn't even talk about it in polite company because it was mm-hmm. so embarrassing to them as a public thing, but yet they used it throughout the kingdom as a way to contain unruly peoples. Mm -hmm. And Holland asks the question, even, and it was so embarrassing to the Romans that they didn't even keep records of it. There's very few records of it. And And so he says, how is it possible that one in particular, one in particular changes the world? And I wanna say like, he would say like, look, the whole notion of men becoming gods, very common. But the men who became gods in the Roman world were Caesars, right? They weren't slaves. They weren't people who were beaten, yeah. right? They didn't become gods by crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Nobody but God would come up with Good Friday and resurrection. Mm-hmm. Nobody but God. We can't imagine these things. The evidence of the disciples, like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? right? I don't know what you're, these things must be fulfilled. Even on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is talking to them. Like, they don't Mm -hmm. get it, Mm -hmm. right? It's hard to imagine until they, he breaks the bread and they have an embodied experience with somebody. Like, you can talk all day long about theology. Yeah. And talking out of my left side of my brain in and of itself is not going to be enough to help me imagine until someone else says, well, what do you think of this? And the moment you say to me, Kurt, what do you think if your marriage means this? What if you think if your singleness means this? What if you think, and the first thing that I'll discover is that the reason I'm going to have a hard time imagining with you is because it scares me. Mm -hmm. It taps into my unfinished business. It's like, you know, Peter, a fisherman, and Jesus says, get out of the boat. And Peter's like, this is, this is what, but because you ask me, I'll do this. Mm-hmm. And so this is what, you know, again, we, we talk about imagination often as a function of the mind that I do in this abstract place somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I want to suggest to us that imagination is always, once again, deeply materially linked to relationship. Mm-hmm. I want to say to you, I want you to imagine this with me. And I want you to know that when you start down this path, I'm not ever leaving the room. Mm-hmm. That when things get dicey, when things get hard, when things are confusing, you need to know I'm not leaving the room. Yeah. Yeah. Imagination feels so deeply tied to hope. Right. It feels like when we stop imagining, it's because we are afraid of the disappointment if we don't get the thing we imagine. Right. For right. every type of person, for 
young to old, married to single, parents, non-parents. Right. We are we're afraid to hope, so we're afraid to imagine. Right. Does that feel true? Right. Well, and I think you're, you've, to your question earlier about like, you know, what do we do? I mean, our imaginations, like I, I can use my imagination all day, every day uh, in such a way that, you know, has me down the rabbit hole of shame. That's how mm. I imagine my life. I yes. imagine my life in, because we're never not using our imaginations. To literally, We're never not using our imaginations right. Right, because I image things. I don't yes. think things without images in my head and about the story that's behind that. So I'm always either moving toward Jesus or away from him mm. in my use of imagination. Mm-hmm. And that's why I need other people in my life who can help me imagine a different story because shame has so hijacked in my own personal life. Like I tell people, like, I'm a professional sinner. Like mm. I'm really me good too. at this. And so I need you on a regularly cadenced basis to help form new neural imaginative networks mm-hmm. such that I can hope as you're describing, but I'm able to hope because in the same way that a toddler who is first learning to walk hopes because she's walking towards someone she sees. Mm. I can hope that my legs will hold me mostly because I'm not worried that they won't. Mm -hmm. And when they don't, mom and dad are coming for me. They're never not coming for me. And it's in that space that hope is often built through suffering, not Mm -hmm. just because I get what I want, but because even when what I want doesn't happen, Somebody's coming for me. Yeah. In order for me once again to be seen, soothed, safe, secure. Yeah. That that is the trick of hope. Right. Believing that you're like knowing your legs can hold you and right. still falling. Right. And and when this happens, it gives me confidence, faith. These three remain faith, hope, love. This I can hope and I can expand my imagination not primarily because I get what I want, but because in the suffering toward any, in any movement continues to remind me that I am not left by myself. Yes. How do we find these communities? I mean, you've built them through your practice. So many of us feel lonely. So many of us don't have this kind of confessional community or group therapy? How do we even find it in our, where we live? So uh, this is, it's a great question. And I, um, whenever I talk about this, I think about, uh, I go back to the book called Genesis, the story we haven't heard by Paul Borgman. Borgman was a professor of literature at Gordon College. Uh-huh. And uh, he taught the book of Genesis as a literature course, not as a mm-hmm. theological course, as a literature course, which turned into a book. And in this book- Oh, I'm going to read that. I in, bet that's awesome. In this book, he focuses on three major characters, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. And one of the questions that he posed that, when I read this book 20 years ago, just really, he said, who knows how many people God tried to convince to go with him to Canaan before Abraham <laughs> finally agreed. We don't know because wow. there's no story there. We don't know. And I thought, oh my goodness. The same thing is true of Jesus, right? God's asking Abraham, would you, would you come with me? I mean, who knows who else God has asked? He asked Abraham and Abraham finally goes. And then Jesus comes along and starts asking people, 
to be his disciple. Uh -huh. And we don't, like, who knows how many know. he asked who said no yes. before the record starts to be recorded. We do know that there were others who he did ask, the rich young ruler, the others that he yeah. did ask, come and follow me, who said no. And so I, the first thing that I would want to say is this notion of partnership, this notion of integration, this notion of community. I just want us to know that Jesus knows exactly how hard this is. This is not a foregone conclusion that Jesus said, like, yeah, this, this is the way I've made it, and just go do this. Like, no, it's, like, it is really hard to do. And he asks people, and some say yes and some say no. And so the first thing I want to say is this is hard to do, and it's hard to do not because we're weak, not because we're pansies, not be but because evil finds it to be anathema. Evil knows that the moment that you start to do this work, its days are even more numbered. Yes. And so first step is you're not alone in knowing. God knows that this is hard to do uh, in the... Um, in the TV series, The Chosen, yeah, there's this one line where Jesus is having a conversation with another man, and he says, I ask a lot from people who want to follow me, and I ask very little of those who do not. Mm. And so he knows that he's asking a lot. Right. And I want us to say, so tactically, I'm just going to name some things yes. for us to do, but recognizing that this is hard to do, and we just keep asking. Mm -hmm. And so... Our listeners may think, if you can think of one person with whom you would be willing to try the notion of telling your story to them mm. and say, like, I'd like to have some time for us to know each other, and I want to tell you my story, and I want you to tell me yours, and I want us to be vulnerable about that. And, of course, we're not just talking about anybody off the street. We're not talking about just doing like, – Jesus didn't just randomly pick people. Right. And – we're going to try this. I remember I was here in Nashville a number of years ago speaking at a church, and uh, I, I said to folks, this whole notion of creating these communities is really hard to do, and so much so that people will, to protect against, like, no, I don't want to do that, and being kind of, you know, denied the opportunity, people won't want to do this with you, we, we just don't try. Mm. I said, uh, so it's, it's hard to do, I don't know if anybody's going to do it. I, six months later, I get an email from three women hmm. who had said, we were the three people that you said weren't going to do this. <laughs> And for the last six months, we have been doing this, mm -hmm. and it has not only transformed our lives, but it has transformed people around us because people are actually asking us, what's different about you? Mm. Now, it means then we can start with one person, and then we bring another one in, and then we bring another one in. And I would say when you have a group of five, six, or seven folks that are part of this group that can transparently tell your story mm. on an ongoing basis, this is why we call our groups confessional communities, not because we're confessing sin alone, but, but because we are telling our stories more truly, yeah. always acknowledging this is really hard to do. Nobody does this perfectly. That's not the point. Jesus is not worried mm. about the process. He's not worried about us doing this perfectly. He knows we're not going to do this perfectly. I mean, like, otherwise, he wouldn't have picked disciples. He would have just done this all by himself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so once we have two or three people, I would say, Try that on for size. Mm -hmm. You say, well, what, what does that mean to tell your story? You know, I would say we take 20 minutes and tell your story. It's not easy to tell your whole story in 20 minutes. Right. Because there are things I'm going to leave out. Things, And then the other person tells their story. And in, in these groups, we have what I call a storytelling liturgy mm -hmm. that we use, where it's a four-part back-and-forth, back-and-forth thing that we a person tells their story, and then the listeners just reflect what they feel. 
Mm. They don't reflect what they think. They don't reflect their analysis of their story. They just reflect what they're feeling. And then we give the storyteller the opportunity to respond to what has it been like for you to hear other people's reactions to what you said. Mm. And they then talk about what their emotional states are. And Mm. countless times when someone talks about feeling things that they didn't know that they felt because of other people expressing things about their story that they didn't know they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And then we give the listeners one more chance to name what has it been like for you to have this experience of recognizing what your words, how your words have impacted someone else. Right. Again, back to this notion that we don't believe that we're that illuminating. Yes, yes. And yet we so, when Jesus says, you're the light of the world, it's not just a comment of responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's a comment of hope, to your Mm -hmm. point. It's a comment of saying, your being illuminating is going to enable others' imaginations Mm -hmm. to see that even when you're in the boat in really, really horrible weather, I'm going to invite you to step out of it. Mm -hmm. And... I want to say that this practice takes time. This is not a thing that you do in six weeks. Okay. This is about the slow work of God. Yes. Everything about the world tells us that God is a God who works slowly mm-hmm. because he is unwilling for any, any part of human experience to be left untouched by him. And so we want to be in a place where I would also say I mean, this is where your network, I mean, like, like, like your network is such a brilliant thing. This sense that you're not just there to like support and say, oh, we can do this for you. We can do this for you. We can do this for you. You're also there to talk with each other about like what, like when you're pulling your hair out, like when things feel like they're falling around you, like when someone is feeling broken, mm-hmm. even in their vocational work, mm-hmm. to have you to be able to say, this is really hard, to have you weep with them about what's happening in their work Mm -hmm. and say, this is really hard and I'm not leaving the room. Mm -hmm. This is really hard and I'm not leaving the room. That is is one of the safest things I think I could ever hear from someone. (laughs) I would say this last thing, um, there are two major questions that we ask people frequently in these these confessional groups. The first question is, what do you want? Mm -hmm. We keep asking, what do you want? And what do you want behind that? What do you want behind that? What do you want? Because we are people of longing. Mm -hmm. We are people of great desire because we are imaging our God who has made us a God of great desire, Mm -hmm. who desires us to desire him and who desires us to be desired by him. And we are people of great grief. Mm -hmm. We are people of great longing and we are people of great grief. And life is to be lived in the middle of those two things. Those two things. In this world, you will have tribulation. And then he doesn't say, but, but it's okay. He says, but be of good cheer. Mm. Even in the face of your longing, even in the face of your grief, be of good cheer because in the presence of nobody leaving the room because of what my spirit is doing, mm-hmm. joy is going to be discovered. And not only joy, but creativity, the likes of which you could never have realized unless or until you were willing to reveal the part of your life that was broken in the first place. Mm. We could, I, I could just keep, keep you trapped in this room for another couple hours. I, I just can't tell you how much your work means to me. So mm. this is, okay. Can we this just, has been okay. I know, I know we got, I know we got to stop, but like, I can hang. I just want to take it in. I'm a guy who worries that his work isn't enough. And so even right now, it's a real moment. 
and I'm, uh, I feel really seen and soothed, safe, secure here, even in this space with you. I really believe like God has shown up for me here now. So I'm just so grateful. I lay by a pool and felt seen and secure and safe and soothed by mm. you. Mm. And so I am, it is more than I could have asked the Lord to do to have you mm. feel some mm. degree of what your work has done for me. Mm. So mm. that is it. Thank you. Thank you so much. We, I can't pleasure. wait for people to get their hands on this. And, and until they can, they've got mm. soul of shame mm. and anatomy of the soul. Yeah. But Soul of Desire is is a book that and a work that will that will make some artifacts that people will never forget. Mm. For the glory of God. Thanks be to God. You guys, I mean, wow, right? Wow, we just were teary the whole way through. What a gift. What a gift Kurt is to us. And I'm just so thankful. Be sure you get a copy of The Soul of Desire. And make sure you're following Kurt. Tell him thanks so much for being on the show. If you need anything else from me, you know I'm embarrassingly easy to find. Annie F. Downs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places you may need me. That's how you can find me. And I think that's it for me today, friends. Go out or stay home and do something that sounds fun to you. I'll do the same. Have a great weekend. And we'll see you back here on Monday with one of our favorites, John Mark Comer. See you then. Yeah.